Hello, welcome to Chapter 3 Podcast, the show for readers of science fiction, fantasy, and romance. This is Season 2, Episode 20. Today, we're going to be talking about queer historical romance, and we have a very exciting panel of authors joining us. We're very, very pleased. We have Adriana Herrera, who's a return guest, USA Today bestselling author who was born and raised in the Caribbean, but for the last 15 years has let her job and her spouse take her all over the world. She loves writing stories about people who look and sound like her people getting unapologetic happy endings. When she's not dreaming up love stories, planning logistically complex vacations with her family, or hunting for discount Broadway tickets, she's a trauma therapist in New York City working with survivors of domestic and sexual violence. And her latest book is um, Caribbean Heiress in Paris, which is amazing. Then we also have Erica Ridley, a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of witty, feel-good historical romance novels. When not reading or writing romances, Erica can be found riding camels in Africa, ziplining through rainforests in Costa Rica, or getting hopelessly lost in the middle of Budapest. Very exciting. Uh, and then lastly, we have Olivia Waite, who writes queer historical romance, fantasy, science fiction, and essays. She is the romance fiction columnist for the New York Times Book Review as well, which is really cool. Thank you so much to everybody for joining us. We're so excited to have you. Hey, it's lovely to be here. Hello. Hi. My cat literally started scratching as soon as you finished. <laughs> I was like, crap, I can't say anything. I'm very excited. <laughs> Glad y'all to come join us. Yes. So, kind of to start off easy, we thought we'd go around and ask you all to introduce your most recent or closest releasing book, whichever makes the most sense to listeners, and then also recommend a favorite queer film. Bonus points if it's historical. And we can. Do you want can, me to we, start, and then we'll loop back to you, Bethany? Okay. We want to just <laughs> if you little... recommend something. So give we'll give you time to think. So I'm another host, Izzy. I'm also a romance booktuber and talk a lot about romance books. Queer historical film, when we were talking about this prepping questions, I don't have historical, but it's Rocky Picture Horror Show. Because I feel like that was the first movie I saw that just like had tons of mm -hmm. queer characters. And like young me was like, oh, huh. <laughs> That's a thing that like, you know, I would see out and about, but like I didn't like ever think about it in my film. So I feel like it's a weird one, but I was just like, you know, this, this movie is weird. It's definitely definitely queer. I think that was a lot of people's first. Like that was definitely one of the first queer movies that I ever saw as a, mm -hmm. as a high school teen, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. Clue, I probably would say is in that vein of things that felt gay, but I didn't know that's what I was feeling. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I can see that. Yeah. I've never thought of that before. But that's not my pick. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay well so one that i thought that i saw recently finally is colette which was really great and it was interesting because i didn't know she was an actual french author and her life is so interesting and it was a great film mm -hmm. and then i went and like read one of her books after I, I think and this is one thing too that we'll get into more is i do think it's interesting starting to see how many queer people did live in history that just haven't been talked about for a mm -hmm. long time I actually stumbled over this recently because like, you know, I'm not, I haven't gotten to Colette yet, but I'm reading Proust right now. There are lesbians. Like everybody talks about Proust being queer and it's like, okay, yeah, but here's some lesbians talking about how much easier it is to be lesbians now that her dad is dead and isn't there to surveil them the whole time. Wow. And this is presented as, oh, semi-murderous, her dad would be rolling in his grave kind of stuff. And I'm like, I mean, this seems fine. <laughs> Like, but nobody ever mentioned them and we're like sitting there in their parlor with them as they're like making out and I'm like this is literature why does nobody ever mention this 
Wow. I mean, I always say it's like, it's not an FBI file. I think it's just like, there was a general consciousness that it wasn't there. And now that that's not the case. Like our consciousness evolved Mm -hmm. into knowing that it's, Mm -hmm. I'm reading right now, not talking about things that I had like heard about, but not read. I'm going to watch Gentleman Jack on HBO, Mm. which is the story about Anne Ridley, who was like openly gay living in the 1830s. And she kept a extremely detailed journal of her life, like every single encounter that she had with a person, whether it was a lover or not, she like documented in this, like, I think it's like 6 million words. And now I'm reading kind of like the the companion book to the series. And it's, I mean, they got married. They got married in a church in like 1832. Oh my gosh. And yeah, and when she met her, she was like, she will be my wife. Like, it's not even like, Mm -hmm. she will be my secret lover that I will see and talk and code about. She was like, (laughs) she's going to be my wife. Wow. My mom, my super Catholic mom is actually watching that show right now and really enjoying it. And I'm just like, wow, like this is, this is phenomenal. And it's kind of like obnoxious, but the actress that plays the role is phenomenal. That's amazing. This isn't historical, but I did just watch Fire Island recently. And oh, I I want to watch that. It's super cute. It's just super fun. It's a good time all around. Another one that I was going to mention is something that I grew up with. And I think it's, again, I think I'm thinking a lot about the parallels of growing up in Latin America, well, in the Caribbean, but in like Spanish Caribbean Mm -hmm. and coming here in my twenties and the things that I was like exposed to, or just thought were like normal things that here were viewed differently or had like a different lens to it. But like, I grew up watching Pedro Almodovar films in the movie theater. Like Pedro Almodovar Mm -hmm. was a huge creator in the eighties, everybody. And his films were like organically gay. Like it wasn't like, it was like a little Mm -hmm. thing that he threw in there. Like he was exploring the gamut of sexuality, gender expression, everything you could imagine in the 80s and he was like a well i mean he was scandalous of course but he Mm -hmm. was like well regarded and really respected in the spanish-speaking world and i think you know he became more popular here like more like in the late 90s early 2000s and then really big with volver which was the movie that penelope cruz Mm -hmm. was um Mm -hmm. nominated for an oscar but he was huge. And I remember going to the movie theater with my mom, like in the 80s to go see like Tacones Lejanos, which is like basically about like a, a trans woman. It's it's about a man who falls in love with a trans woman. So it's, wow. it's just like, I think that piece is like also what's like been interesting about writing these books now, these historicals, that lens, because I think it's just like the lens in America is very different from the lens in other places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Almodovar was my first queer film that I saw in the movie theater as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And his oeuvre is huge. Like he's yes. a very prolific yeah. creator. Yeah. It's interesting because we do overly focus on like the US and I think it's always fun and interesting to hear like, oh other places it's not like this always. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. my favorite thing. And I think I think time has like a huge thing to do with that as well. Mm-hmm. I mean I grew up as a huge nerd sneaking my mom's Greek mythology textbooks. And turns out there's queer content all over those stories. Like, so and it's gay. just very casual. Mm-hmm. It's like, all true. Love nobody's fussed about it. And mm-hmm. so that was really formative for me growing up was just like, oh yeah, this is a possibility. And then slowly you realize, oh, <laughs> they, they don't like that like now. 
like um yeah we're gonna hide it now yeah so much like the lens right yeah Mm -hmm. and we like to have this idea that history is a unidirectional march toward progress and that's a lie not true (laughs) no yeah yeah so we wanted to to talk because it's interesting in the last few years we've noticed there's been a lot of growth in traditionally published queer romances including historicals that feels different and so we're curious what has been your experience with that and also what inspired you to start writing queer books because I know there's a mix of like how late in careers that started Erica so I started traditionally publishing my first book came out in 2010 and at that time I felt as though the market what I was told basically that the market was straight white characters when you're talking about historical romance and so effectively that was what I had to write and I had other friends who were big names who were told just to their face that they couldn't write anything other than that so I definitely felt that pressure later I went indie and was able to branch out a little bit on my own, obviously because of self-publishing, but it's it's weird the programming that gets in your head because even mm-hmm. as a bisexual person who consumes queer media, it took a while for me to kind of remember like, oh yeah, now I don't need anybody's permission. I can do what I want now. <laughs> yeah. And so now I'm hybrid and it's I, I still almost can't believe it that now I'm allowed to write the kinds of stories that I want to write. I can have a diverse cast. I'm writing queer stories, I'm writing, you know, non-white protagonists and, you know, things that I couldn't do before. And I really do feel like, although there is a long way left to go, obviously, um, we have, I do feel like turned a corner, like in, in a way that, because obviously queer material has always existed, but wasn't maybe as welcomed by the mainstream before. And I feel just delighted by all the people that I see, you know, you guys, I've read both of your books and a bunch of other authors I could name. I, I'm just so glad to to see it all over my Instagram feed and see it in actual bookstores and definitely the market's changed. And it is such an exciting time to feel enabled, not just, oh, I self-publish, I can do what I want, but also as as the wider market. Yeah, it's amazing. Who wants to go next is fine. Um, I could could jump off of that. Um, Yeah. yeah. Like I started the same time as Erica. I started writing professionally in 2010. And uh, I didn't come out as bisexual until I was 35. It was a long journey for me involving a lot of like internalized biphobia. Basically, like when I was a kid, I worried I was a lesbian. I got my first crush on a boy, went, whew, guess I'm straight. And just never revisited (laughs) the question. Uh, Until I read my first romance with a bisexual heroine. And I went, oh, 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 yeah. No, so um so it took me a while. I was like a few books like six or seven books deep into publishing when I started thinking I need to I need to find more queer historicals and I just wasn't finding one that scratched the itch for me. And then I started writing one and then I sold that one and two more. And it was really exciting and at the time there was this idea that especially sapphic books wouldn't sell. Mm-hmm. Um, but by then people knew MM was big business, you know, kind of in the MM section, like it was yeah. very much like a separate market in many ways. And then in the same summer, Alyssa Cole's first queer black contemporary came out mm-hmm. from, from Avon and my first sapphic historical came out and red, white and royal blue came out in like the space of like four months. 
It was suddenly, a big summer. It was a big summer. And then the summer after that, which was last summer, I was able to do an entire summer romance column for the New York Times with six queer books and one straight one. And I'm wow. like, I am spoiled for choice. This is, this is different. This is like... I was really excited. Like when my first book came out, I'm like, oh, I'm helping. I'm helping. This is going to be like, it felt new and it felt exciting. And then to see a year later, no, this like this and all of those other books and Red, White and Royal Blue really did like kind of land like a wrecking ball. Um, yeah. But it helps. Like people are taking those chances now because they see that the support is there. Mm -hmm. we're getting we're like starting to branch out more like that support is starting to reach other corners like adriana's upcoming paris historical and erica ridley your perks of loving a wallflower like yeah. all of those are possible now and it's so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just so thrilled about it i'm still kind of stunned <laughs> but very excited yeah yeah i mean i think same i I think I benefited from people like Erica and Olivia that had to like wait for years before they could write it. Cause I, I wrote my first book came out in 2019 around that same time. I think my book came out like yeah. three weeks before Red, White and Royal Blue or three weeks after something, I can't remember. But um, I wrote just contemporary queer romance cause that was like the place where I could like get away with writing. I was like all the double whammy. It's like, well, I want to write it queer but I want to write it you know, Spanish speaking, mm -hmm. black people who are immigrants. So I was like, okay, you have to like take it in steps. So I, I, I would have loved to have written on historical because historical is what I came into romance to write. But even in 2016, it was like, well, there's no market mm -hmm. for that. Like there's literally mm -hmm. like, no, they couldn't even envision an idea of a historical, not only with, you know, brown people who spoke Spanish, but also in Europe and also gay so i wrote my dreamer series which was great and i and i love writing contemporary but really kind of like the space for writing queer historical romance feels like it's and again like kj charles had been out there since 2013 i think writing mm -hmm. mm historical and Kat was sebastian was out there around like 2015 yes. or 16. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think even with Kat Sebastian and then like Alexis Hall also, like, yeah. I feel like that was mm -hmm. like kind of like a space opened. And then, you know, I think the market itself like broke in, in terms of like being able to like accept or like envision stories yeah. that were. And honestly, I feel like Bridgerton even benefited me because even though the <laughs> books themselves don't have people of color in them I think the market or like uh, the audiences mm -hmm. could yeah. like envision now had a visual for a world mm -hmm. in historical where brown people could just be yeah no that totally makes sense to see it on screen it feels like one of those moments where it's like if you've been if you've been trying for this kind of thing it feels like insufficient but it's a lot of people's like entry point and then yes. those people are going to like take it even farther and then come back and look at it the way we look at Rocky Horror where they're like oh that's that's not quite as progressive as we remember it being. <laughs> there's a lot of problems here, actually, but also, like, there's a reason why yeah. we respond to it. And I feel like Bridgerton's yeah. going that for, yeah. like, a generation. Yeah. Okay, so as we're talking about historicals, what kind of research do y'all do to prepare to write historical romances with queer people? Are you reading up on the history of queer people in the past? Are you doing a ton of research? Or are you just kind of, you know, going with the conventions of the time and then just making it queer or... 
people of color, you know, adding black people, adding people who speak Spanish and all that into the mix, verifying, because we know how people get, um, even though we all know history was very gay and queer, it's just hidden. Well, I'm sure we've all experienced the person who is like, you know, rude about it. I intentionally set my books in Paris. Well, A, because I got lucky that I found this article saying that there was like 5,500 Latin people in Paris mm -hmm. in 1889. And like a lot of them were Dominican. So it was like, I'm going to set it here. But also Paris was, in the Belle Epoque was like a huge gay scene. Like mm -hmm. Montmartre was like, there were like multiple lesbian bars that were operated yeah. by women. They were for women. What, gay women were having a fantastic time in the 1880s and 1890s in Paris. So to me, it was just like, I'm setting it here. I have a ton of reference material that I can go to and sources from that not only was it not illegal for women to have sex with other women, the authorities like were not penalizing it. They were just like wanting to make sure everybody was like paying their dues to the city. So mm -hmm. it was not at all any kind of thing where like I couldn't have like a, a woman with money okay, and having lovers and like just being fine. So to me, that was part of it. But yes, I do a lot of research. I do a lot of research because A, I have no books to reference romances that I yeah. can go to, to even explore like, any reference to how a woman from the Afro-Caribbean would be written, there are none. And because I do want to make sure that I present the history, because again, to me, growing up in the Dominican Republic, and I'm sure like this is, I know, Erica, you live in Costa Rica, like me walking down the capital of the Dominican Republic in Santo Domingo, all I see is the history. Like the entire colonial area of Santo Domingo is buildings that have been there since the 1500s, which were built by people in Europe and there were ships coming back and forth since then. So to me, the history is there. No one has to tell me that that happened. To me, it's just like presenting it to the wider world that may or may not have that awareness. Yeah. I think to, to riff on that a little bit, contemporaneously, like famously the two women known as the ladies of Langolin moved to North mm -hmm. Wales in order to be together and escape forced marriages to men. They ended up becoming famous all throughout Britain. They opened up their home to people like William Wordsworth, Lord Byron, Percy Shelley, Duke of Wellington. So it's not like it was this big secret, right? So I, I think it's it's a lot like you were saying. There, the, the history is there. I love to research it and find like these examples because then I can use my imagination on top of it. I can say, well, mm -hmm. you know, these people were living it. They were doing it. Like my stories are totally plausible. It's not what you're currently seeing on the shelves, but there's absolutely nothing to indicate that, that this kind of love story couldn't happen. Yeah. Yep. That's great. That's one of my favorite things about doing historical research is the parts that are so much weirder than you expect. I was poking around to do a Hamilton fanfic once, and this is my favorite story about historical accuracy. And I realized, okay, well, Hamilton is set at the same time as my other favorite Broadway musical, The Scarlet Pimpernel. And I'm like, wouldn't it be fun to like write a story that connected those two? I thought, well, wait a minute. Angelica Schuyler goes to Par or like goes to London right around the time the Pimpernel would have been active. Suppose they meet at a ballroom. She has somebody who needs rescuing. She gets the Pimpernel to do it. And I'm like, who would need rescuing? And I'm like, wait a minute, where's Lafayette at the time? And so I'm poking around all the archives. And sure enough, Lafayette during this time period had been captured and was in an Austrian prison for being a revolutionary. And as I'm like, okay, which prison? Let's figure out. And then I find the letter from the real Angelica about the real Lafayette, where she hired a guy to break him out of this prison. Like literally in her letters, this little like escapist fanfic idea was literal fact. Oh my gosh. 
And I just like, I never actually did write the story. I felt too weird. I'm like, this is the simulation glitching. Like, and so I'm like, you know what? At this point, historical plausibility, like we like to reduce historical accuracy down to probabilities. And that's just not how it works. So yes. if it was physically, financially, and chronologically possible, odds are somebody was doing it. We just don't have the actual receipts. Yeah, and we know that the people that get to write the history have sanitized everything because oh, if yeah. they hadn't, then we would know that the Greeks were a gay ass F. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then like would have known it from the go. Yeah. The way that colonial history, like the Spanish, like destroyed all of the like actual written histories of the peoples that they were like enslaving. It was yeah. 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 There's yeah. like yeah colonization yeah Sucks. speaking of Adriana, i know i was at the the thing for your the launch for your caribbean airs in paris and you were talking about i don't remember who it was but somebody who was doing some wild stuff in paris somebody's wife or something I'm trying to remember what it was you were like talking about like at parties I gotta think. Was it like somebody who would like come in like nude or something like that? I'm trying to. Oh yes, yes. So um, at the 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 palace, so the house where the American embassy is now, and it's his has been there. This building has been the embassy for the U.S. since like the 1880s. This palace belonged to Napoleon's sister, and back in the day, she would host parties where she would like simulate like she was Cleopatra, and she would like come out in this like bed that would be like carried by like four men that she brought from Morocco and they would be like oiled up and in like loincloths and they would like bring her out in the nude for her like when she would come out of the party and this was like so what just something that happened all the time in Paris back during Napoleon times and so I was trying to figure out a way to like have some kind of event at this embassy so I could tell this anecdote <laughs> in the first book. I couldn't pull it off in the first book, but I'm pretty confident I can get it for the second book. Yes. <laughs> Can't wait to read that. I was like, it left an impression. I was like, that is the wildest story. Yeah. If you're a subtle yeah. family, the Bonapartes. <laughs> right. Really low key. Yeah. I love it. Um, okay, so we have some like specific questions questions for each of you as well. Erica, in Perks of Loving a Wallflower, you play a little bit with gender identity with these really fun characters, which I loved that. And I'm curious, how did you navigate writing that in a historical context with like gender stuff? I don't know if there's any research that went into that or like how you kind of approached. Yeah, so it was kind of a mix. I, I find it difficult to get a lot of firsthand research on specifically being non-binary in the Regency era. So I, that was more, you know, kind of modern sensibilities to, to a certain degree and try to imagine like what that would have been like in Regency times. As someone who is not non-binary, it was important to me to have a sensitivity reader who was to kind of mm -hmm. help me ensure that I, I, that I, well, that I didn't unintentionally make a misstep. I never want to cause anyone any kind of offense or discomfort or hurt or anything reading one of my books. So I wanted to make it as respectful and accurate as possible for, for that aspect, but also within the framework of they, they wouldn't have had those words at the time. You know, mm -hmm. Tommy couldn't come out and say, I prefer they, them pronouns because that, that wasn't the right, thing that was going to happen. And so it is kind of a fine line. I've gotten some feedback on both sides from people that were upset with me because I didn't do they them for example but I felt you know I had to make some calls as an author you know towing sure. that line between who are we now and what would have been 
realistic at that time. Yeah, that's tricky. That is tricky. And I feel like if you do it too, then you get the person screaming at you for historical accuracy and you're like, yeah, I can't win without Olivia, what inspired you to talk so heavily about women's work and its value, specifically in your feminine pursuit series? Because like for me, that hit home really hard in like a delightful way. Some of it was that I've always been like a crafter. I've always done knitting and crochet and then I've been branching out into other fiber arts lately. And I've read a lot on like, you know, we talk a lot about housework, but we don't really talk a lot about historical housework. And a lot of that was what we would now consider crafty things like sewing clothes for a family, decorating cushions, which sounds super decorative and fancy to us because we can go to a store and buy that cushion. But if you couldn't, decorating the house wasn't mere frippery it was something that actually made a house comfortable and homey and specific Mm -hmm. like and it did take a lot of time and it is a lot of work and also um, I moved into a building that had these big paintings of close-up embroidery like there was this lantern and it was Mm -hmm. embroidered and the stitches were huge so you could see how all of the different colors interplayed Mm -hmm. and I was fascinated by these and I hadn't done any embroidery or cross stitch since I was younger And then I started to notice that every single historical heroine I read for like a year hated embroidery. And it became this mark of like, you know, she's a heroine because she's impatient with embroidery. And like, it's the femininity. And I'm like, well, I reject traditional femininity, but I really like embroidery. It's great to do while you're binge watching something. It keeps your hands busy and then you make a thing. So I started doing these little miniature embroideries and researching. And I'm like, I'm going to write a heroine who likes embroidery. And then I had this whole scholar widow idea that started as an MF years ago. And it was going to be like a virgin hero. And then when I wanted to write the uh, sapphic historical, I was like, well, this is perfect. I need to switch it from classics to astronomy, obviously, because women were much more into astronomy than, than they were allowed into classics. But uh, it just kind of snowballed. And then it became this whole... And I thought, well, of course, the widow would be great at embroidery. And she spent all this time on board ship where there's nothing to do. So it just kind of ended up everything kind of matching, which is honestly one of the things I love about doing things like knitting and craft work is when you take all these disparate materials and weave or tie them together in ways that they become something new and something exciting. I'm a crafter. So I was just like, oh, I love this. I feel seen. <laughs> I felt very seen in that moment. I was like, oh. Yeah, everybody thinks it's weird. I like to embroider and cross stitch. Like, it's not. It's fine. It's really soothing. Like, it's mm-hmm. just really peaceful. It is. Adriana, you have were written, you've talked a little bit about this, that you started out writing contemporaries and interested in the transition to historical romance. What has that transition been like for you? And also, going forward i'm excited i mean we do want to hear too about plans but i know you've got like two more books coming i think in this series and then do you have other things that you're wanting to do in historical as well all right um (laughs) yes so the transition was interesting because i again part of it too was i read a lot of historical romance but i had not been able to read one for example with a woman from the dominican republic who was coming to Europe to sell her rum, right? So I had to kind of like make my own way there. And again, really for me, part of it was really having to make myself hold on to my lens and how I write. I write a lot about what it's like to be a person in a brown body in this world. And I, so I had to hold, like, again, and like even the language that we use, that, that is used in historical, like, 
I love it, but I had to like put my own lens over it so that it could feel like it was my voice. And that took me a while. I wrote this book three times, which was not fun. But I had to, like, the first one ended up being like a referendum on colonialism, which was really important things. I said a lot of important things, but they were not fun, sexy, or hot for what, and it wasn't what I wanted, right? I wanted to write a rompy historical, like the ones that I love to read. I wanted ballrooms. I wanted the dresses. I wanted the things that I find delicious and that really hit those pleasure points for me when I read a historical romance. And I also had to kind of like, maintain that piece of like Lusalana was a black woman in a world that like you know is challenging for women like her and and also I had a white hero with a position with a title and I had to subvert that in in, in some way and it couldn't be by her educating him on all the ways him being white and an earl were like a problem like he had to know and not like he learned it like in the 24 hours before he met her the first time and like the second time they met so like i had to like really figure all these things out and there's just like a lot more scaffolding that Mm -hmm. you have to build for a historical than it is for contemporary because even like the language dialogue vernacular all those things are how i talk in real life now and Mm -hmm. and for the historical i had to really change it. I wanted, again, like if I was going to do cultural references, art references, all of that had to be Latin and all of it had to be from the Caribbean. Because even though I did talk about Jane Austen because I love Pride and Prejudice and I just like to read about Jane Austen in a historical (laughs) way, I had to do it in a way that made sense for this woman. So it was complicated and a lot more to think about than I would have thought initially. I'm like, well, I've read 7,000 historicals. Surely this is gonna be much easier than I think it is. It wasn't, it was hard. <laughs> but, uh, but I do enjoy the research and I love just being, like the fact that this book exists is a dream of mine. Like I've always wanted to read a book with a Latina heiress and a historical. The fact that it exists and I got to write to write it is just, really great and it's great um, and everyone seems to love it which is awesome yay which is right and so yeah so there's two more books in the series one is the next the one that i'm writing right now is manuela who is one of the three friends in the series mm-hmm. and she's an artist and she hooks up with this duchess she's a widow and she is also latina she's her her mother was chilean and her dad is was like an american robber baron type and then the third book is Aurora, who's a physician. She's Afro-Mexican. Her her mom was Dominican, but her dad is Mexican. And she hooks up with Apollo, who is a character that comes into in the story early on and is an important character in the first book. And he is just has to suffer a little more before he gets his happy ending. So he's the third book. You want a little torture, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, he needs to suffer. He's he's a little too um self-absorbed right now. <laughs> yeah. gotta fix that yeah. Love it. that's one of my favorite character arcs is the the brash golden boy who has to suffer a bit of a comeuppance like mm-hmm. over the course of several series like i think one of Alyssa cole's princes i think it's prince johan yes mm-hmm. and he's like everybody's comic relief in the first two books and then he gets to get devastated yeah. in his yes. book and it's it's delicious it, it needs to be broken down limb by limb before you get <laughs> the happy ending. Yes. Yes. I mean, I have a weakness for disaster bisexual princes anyway. So, <laughs> well, you will have him. You will See, have him. That's exciting. I am looking forward that to is. this. 
Yeah. So we kind of started touching on this, but how do you navigate deciding the identity of characters you write and in what way has or hasn't the publishing in- in- industry influenced these choices? Like, you know, we're in a bit of a sapphic boom right now. Finally. Okay. <laughs> I'm very excited <laughs> about it. God. Look, I like yeah. my own books. Don't get me wrong, but like I have been dying for more sapphic books. And I'm finally like, oh my gosh, there's so another many. one like every so month. Many. I'm like, there's two more. Come <laughs> here. Let me read you all. For me, in my case, the series I'm working on right now, The Wild Winchesters, it was very important having featuring a diverse cast of characters from the very beginning Hmm. because I went into this and I thought well if I'm ever going to go back to traditional publishing like I want to do it on my terms I want queer characters I want black characters people all different abledness and like I want the the real world people that are that are like me I want I want to show this on the page and it was important to me you know for them not just to be heroes and heroines, but to, to have a true happily ever after, which to me isn't just a, you know, they, they find someone to fall in love with, but also like this sense of home and belonging and that it's ongoing. You get to see, you know, the continuing adventures of Tommy and Philippa or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. like through the course of the story. So that was something that I that I very purposefully set out to do from the very beginning and mm-hmm. and set up this kind of construct. And when I turned that in, not all of that was in the... I, I sold this series like basically on, I don't know, I think it was like one scene or something like that. So it really did not illustrate what I had in mind. And so then when I turned in the first book, uh, The Duke Heist, I I was nervous and I told my agent, I'm like, are they going to tell me no now that they see where I'm going with this? You know, what's going to happen? Am I going to be? Because I had heard all the horror stories from other friends who were not able to tell. And I hear it all the time, like, this past month, another friend of mine, but you know, for the for the semi renaissance that we appear to be in, like it's definitely not across the board. But yeah, but uh, luckily, I have been given free reign to kind of do ex- explore all the different aspects that I that I previously had not been able to do it from the traditional publishing way. So it's very exciting. Mm, that's great. It is exciting. Yeah, and your next book, which I will ask you about too, is. Uh, exciting you've got like two black characters and so far yes. I, I haven't gotten far into it yet but I'm I've started it and it's really fun so far oh thank you thank you it is so exciting I haven't seen that there's there's early copies out in the wild now but mail takes forever to get to Costa Rica yeah. and so for a lot of different reasons like I, I haven't gotten my hands on it yet I have an e-arc I- of it but I haven't actually I don't have a physical <laughs> copy yet but so far it's fun I cannot wait it's so exciting to see a live cover shoot of of a black hero and heroine for a Regency romance. Like it just doesn't happen. And so I'm just so excited. And it's not the only one in this series. So, you know, I, there, there will be more. Just so glad to be part of that. It's like wild that it's 2022 and like we feel like we're breaking ground with things. But at the same time, it's just, just so wonderful. And I saw you recover the first time. I literally like ran and showed it to my partner. I was like, look at this. This is Regency. He, of course, doesn't know what that means, but I was like, it's like in the really early 1800s. It's like, that's amazing. It's amazing. I remember my first time seeing a Cat Sebastian cover and I, I thought, oh, that's clever. This person's like actually like yanked the Avon font for their book. And they're like, Olivia, it's an Avon book. And I'm like, you're kidding me. <laughs> it was a huge revelation. And oh, so yeah. now I'm getting I'm getting greedy. I want all the time periods. Because one thing that queer publishing and indie publishing is really good at is multiple time periods. I mean, you've got KJ Charles and Kat Sebastian doing multiple other time periods. And you've got like Alexis Hall doing some that go back to like the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of 20s stuff out there. There's E.E. E. Ottoman's mid-century stuff. And mm-hmm. I just want like... 
I want to push that out mainstream-wise as well. I want I want more Belle Epoque. I'm actually like, there's a reason I'm reading Proust right now, and I want like I want to get in like some of that good Paris action because it is such a queer mecca at the time. It really and, was the gayest. Yeah, I want the twenties <laughs> and the fifties. So I've got one right now in 1961 New York that I'm pitching around. I want space futures. I want all of it. So. So that's kind of where my focus is. I just think we deserve it all. We do. Yeah, it needs to happen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So exciting. Okay, so in the interest of time, because I'm like, there's so much we could talk about, but we'd love to hear, number one, anything you're working on, something getting published soon or recently that you want to share. And if you have like any specific queer historical books that you love that you think people should go and read. Well, my big current project is actually the New York Times column. They've just made it monthly. So I get to do this every month now, which is super exciting. <laughs> That's amazing. Fewer hard decisions about what to feature, which is the hardest part. But uh, so that's been keeping me pretty busy. I have a couple of other things coming down the pipeline, but nothing I can talk about. Okay. And as for things that people should read, I'm going to go right back to E.E. E. Ottomans again, because the companion was so refreshing. It's such a beautiful, quiet respite of a romance. Trans polytriad in mid-century upstate New York. And there's food recipes and there's vintage lingerie. And it's just so gorgeously sexy wow. and comforting. It, it's a perfect book. It is absolutely stunning. That sounds amazing. I um, I think I just reread this. I might just recommend this. This KJ Charles, the Will Darling series. It's yes. um, set in like right after World War One, and it's a bookseller that hooks up with like an aristocrat who's actually a spy. And there's like a lot of shenanigans. KJ Charles can do a plot line like nobody's business. Like the tightness of those books, like how she just like does that. It's like honestly magic. The setting is fantastic. Clappers and speakeasies, really, really fun. And it's three books. I really love shenanigans. Cat Sebastian's latest series with the queer principles of Kit Webb and the perfect times oh, of Marion Hayes. I love her fast yeah. oh, style. Hayes. Yeah, it's so great. So <laughs> love it so much. So we'll have all of these books linked for anybody who's interested in the video description on YouTube mm -hmm. or in the show notes. We're going to move into a quick segment we call on our radar where we're sure recent or upcoming book releases we're excited about. If anybody brought something to talk about, you're welcome. If you didn't, that's also okay. I, either way. The books to, for today's episode that I and as you'll be talking about are going to be released between July 12th and July 25th, 2022. Mm -hmm. But guest recommendations could be anything recent or upcoming. But if you enjoy the podcast, we'd appreciate if you take a moment to rate and review us so we can continue to reach more listeners. And if you're interested in getting early access to episodes as well as exclusive bonus content with every episode, consider supporting us on Patreon. Huge thanks to all of our supporting patrons, including our world-expanding patrons, Trina and Sarah. You make what we do possible. So thank you. And um, I've got, there's like, everything is coming out in early July, basically. So there's a very busy month. And I don't know it's when that happens. It's, it's a, it's a very busy month. So I'll, I'll mention one that I read and really loved is What Moves the Dead by T. Kingfisher. It's a novella retelling mm -hmm. of the fall of the House of Usher. And it's really good. It has a non-binary main character and uh it's like if you liked mexican gothic you should definitely read this it's really okay. excellent 
Uh, I have Bet On It by Jodie Slaughter, which is out July 12th. The thing that sells me on this book is just the fact that it's a bingo made sex pack. And I have to know how and where we're going with that because it's just sounds bananas. <laughs> like, I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> but yeah, they're trying to both balance their lives and I guess get it on in some capacity with this sex pack they made, um, but not fall in love. So, you know, the best thing, let's bang and get it out of our system. And then, oh no, feelings. <laughs> sex packs are great. Yeah. <laughs> they just always yeah. deliver. Yep. <laughs> Did anybody bring anything that they wanted to share or not? You don't have to. Oh, but. Uh, I've got... The one that I'm really excited about is uh, an upcoming trans retelling of the Achilles story. And it's oh, called yes. Wrath Goddess Thing by Maya Dean. And it looks phenomenal. It does. Like, really wow. It lo- yeah, so, it looks really good. I mean, A plus perfect title could not be better. Agreed. Yes. Another one that looks fun is August Kitko and the Mechas from Space by Alex White. This is a has a queer romance in space with an army of giant robot AIs threatening to devastate Earth and a virtuoso pianist who becomes humanity's last hope. (laughs) Sounds like it'll be fun. All right. uh, My next one is on... July 26th. It's After Hours on Milagro Street. I feel like I'm saying it wrong every single time. But Angelina Lopez. This is about like a kind of a buttoned up tight professor person and a bartender and their romance. And she promised it bangs on TikTok. So if she lied to me, (laughs) I will go reply to her on that TikTok and be like, you were wrong. You you, you denied this. And I'm very upset. If it's Angelina Lopez, it's going to bang. I was like, I've read her before, so I was like, it's got to bang because I can trust her. It bangs. I don't I... completely, but I can trust her when she says it bangs. I've read her other books and they bang. So uh, I just, I love a buttoned up hero. I'm not going to lie. That's kind of what sold me on this. It bangs a lot. And the heroine is great. I read it. She sent me a copy and it's oh. really, that heroine is kick ass. I just, I got an article like, the other that. day of it and I was like, awesome. oh, immediately looks good yeah and it's she i I didn't know this but her family angelina's family is a fifth generation mexican-american kansas family and this part Mm -hmm. of kansas the mexican immigrants build the railroads and Mm -hmm. it's just really fascinating to read just the history of that of that interesting yeah that's really interesting Two coming out July 19th. One I'm reading right now, Youngblood by Sasha Lawrence, is like queer YA vampires at a boarding school. <laughs> so it's really fun. It's like, so it's sort of like if you liked Vampire Academy, but you wish it was queer and more socially conscious, then Youngblood <laughs> is coming out in July. <laughs> so that's been fun. And then also The Daughter of Dr. Moreau by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. I always love mm-hmm. everything by her. And um, this is a reimagining of The Island of Dr. Moreau. And it looks really interesting. And it's following the, the half-Mexican daughter of Dr. Moreau. And I think is going to deal with like colonization in some interesting ways. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was one of my the ones that I was gonna pick. Um, oh, that's that a good one. one. I think it sounds amazing, and her oh. writing is great. Always really good. Have you seen the new cover for Mexican or not Mexican Gothic? Uh, what's the uh, the first one? Oh yeah, Radio Silence. That's one of Radio the only Silence, ones I haven't read yeah. from her. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the new cover is stunning. Yeah, they just put it up for pre-order, and like it's beautiful. I love that all her books are getting re-released. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Oh, there's also Kelly Robson's High Times in the Low Parliament, which is getting pitched as a lesbian fantasy stoner comedy. And I'm so pumped. <laughs> like, it could not be more. That sounds amazing. That yeah. is amazing. So again, this has been Chapter 3 Podcast, and we're your hosts, Bethany and Izzy. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Chapter 3 Podcast, and you can also find us on our individual YouTube channels. Everybody's info and all of the books is going to be linked in the show notes or the video description on YouTube. The next episode will be available in two weeks. I will be back with Liana and a guest to talk about the, the next book in our first law read along by Joe Abercrombie. So tune in for that. That'll be fun. And this episode's bonus content will be available to patrons in the next few days. Thanks for listening.